Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. Matt? All right. And then the rest of us, they're like me, like this week is going to be busy, right? And we praise God for uh, Amazon, Amazon Prime, (laughs) the common grace that he's given us in that. Awesome. Well, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Josh. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at the District Church, and it is always a joy and an honor to be able to open up God's Word with you guys. Um, So if you would, there should be some Bibles next to you if you have a Bible with you. Go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And while you're turning there, kind of want to go over what we've been looking at the last couple of weeks, right? We've been in Advent, and the title that we've given Advent is A Baby Changes Everything. And all the parents in here should shout amen, right? Baby changes everything, right? And the first week we looked at the promises of God and the promises that were made and kept in Christ when he came as a child. All the promises of the Old Testament, all of the the laws and the scriptures and the scribes pointing to him, we saw that God kept those promises and we can find hope in that because of Christ, he will continue to keep his promises to his people. And then last week, we saw how Jesus coming to earth as a child, lowly in spirit, born in a manger, born to poor parents in a small, small, poor town, shows us the economy of God's kingdom, that he doesn't exalt the proud or the boastful, but he welcomes in the humble, and he exalts the humble and the lowly in heart. He showed us last week a glimpse of how this kingdom works and what it looks like to be a believer in Christ. And today we're going to be taking a look at how the baby that changes everything shows us where we find identity and how identity leads us to worship. So my hope this morning as we continue our Advent series through these next couple of weeks and as we get to celebrate Christmas is that when we we come to these holidays, when we come to Christmas, it's not just about the show, right? It's not just about the event. But in these celebrations, they roll past what we're looking at to the glory of God, to be able to praise Him and worship Him in this season. And as we walk through this story of the incarnation of Christ, we see that God has come and made himself known to his people. God has come in the form of a baby and revealed himself through his scriptures. And then we get to see in Christ his nature, his character, and his will for creation. And so my hope as we see this through this Advent series is that it actually wouldn't just be we're celebrating Christmas. Whenever we come to Advent, my hope is that we wouldn't just look at these four weeks out of the whole year and just think, this is the only time that we long and wait and expect Christ to come. But that Advent would be something we are marked by as believers in Christ. That we have a longing that Christ would come every day of our lives. And there are times, right, where pain and pointers will make us long for Christ to come. Shootings in schools, cancer, somebody losing their job, somebody losing their home, like those are pain points that remind us that sin still reigns. But our lives, even, in, even on the mountaintops, should be one where we say, no, I, 
there's, there's something greater. I'm longing for Christ to come. And so my hope as we walk through Advent every single year is that we would not just be marked by these four weeks, but that our lives would reflect this longing and expectation that Christ would come. And we can worship here. We can worship here in this Advent time because we know that Christ has, right? Our hope doesn't just fall on we're waiting for him to come as a child, but he already has and he's fulfilled those promises. He's given us hope and joy and satisfaction in him. So in these times of Advent, in these times of longing and waiting, we wait with expectant hope because we know that we can have satisfaction as we wait. We can have joy as we wait. But we be marked, may we be marked by that waiting. So as we're here in Matthew chapter two, we're gonna be taking a look at three groups of people. Three groups of people that show us identity and how identity leads to worship. So let's kick this off. Let's see what Matthew has to say about the incarnation of Christ. Starting in verse one, it says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. And they said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for this child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I may too come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered their gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And then being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the Lord of the Lord. Let us go to him and ask, us, ask, ask him to bless this time. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for this Christmas season. What do we get to celebrate in it? Lord, that Christ has come. That in him we find hope and joy and satisfaction in all the longings that our heart desires. Lord, in him we see all the promises that you have given to your people. And we know because of him, Lord, that all those promises to make us into the image of Christ, to, to give us the treasures and the inheritance will be fulfilled when he returns. And so, Lord, in this time of waiting, help us to worship well. Help us to wait well so that the world around us the people you have called us to would see this same gospel, would see this same good news, and that we would have the ability to go and share this light that we've been given into the dark and dying world. 
May we never forget this glory and grace and mercy that you've shown us, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I was younger, uh, whenever I would leave my house, my dad would, he would tell me one thing. And I don't know if you guys have grown up with a dad like this. It, it might jog some memories for you, but he told me to remember two things. Who I was and whose I was. So he would tell me, anytime I went to school, anytime I went and played sports, anytime I would go and hang out with friends, he would tell me, remember who you are and whose you are. And as we look through the lives of these wise men, as we look through the lives of these scribes and Pharisees and, and, and the King Herod, when we look through them, we're going to see what my dad was trying to tell me and what God ultimately tries to tell us Anytime we try to find our identity in our talents, in our achievements, in our parenting, in our ministries, even in our sin. What God is saying to us through the book of Matthew this morning is who you are defines, I'm sorry, whose you are defines who you are and what you ultimately worship. So whose you are defines who you are and what you ultimately worship. Now, if you're not already aware of this, and it's not just something that we do on Sunday mornings, if you aren't aware that we are people who are made to worship, if you haven't picked up on that, we are, we are people who are made to worship, whether it is through sports, whether it is through movies, celebrities, we are drawn to things that we want to give glory to. There's a void within us that we are trying to fill with something greater than ourselves because of this truth. Ecclesiastes 3.11, Solomon would tell us, we have eternity written on our hearts. And in a perfect world, which obviously we're not in, God would be the recipient of all that worship. Every time that we worship, he would be the recipient of it in a perfect world. Yet Romans 1 reminds us that we as sinners have exchanged the worship and service of the creator for the worship and service of creation. And so as believers in Christ, we have to, as Paul Tripp would say, reclaim our worship. And the way to reclaim our worship, he says, is by understanding that worship is an identity before you think of it as an activity. You see, you and I, the worshipers, are always attaching our identity or meaning our well-being, or our sense of purpose to something or someone. And where worshipers find our identity, there we'll find practical ways to worship. As John Calvin would remind us, our hearts are idol factories. And so it is easy for us to create these idols in people, places, things, loves. We place glory on anything and everything our heart desires. And so we're constantly attaching our identity to these idols that we create, and we're worshiping them. So I want to take a look this morning at these three groups of people, and what they teach us about identity, and how we should ultimately worship. So let's take a look at Herod. So Matthew shows us in verse 1 here that as Jesus the baby comes onto the scene in Bethlehem, we see that it is during the reign and rule of Herod the king. Now, I know Duane has talked a little bit about Herod the king. He might not have gone completely in detail, so I want to give you just 
a bit of a background of who Herod the Great was. See, Herod was a half-Jew. He's actually in line of Ishmael. Um, so he was half-Jew, half-Gentile, right? And because of this status, he fought for the title King of the Jews, which is going to be important as we walk through and see his character. But he had also received the title Herod the Great, and for good reason. He was the only ruler of Palestine who ever succeeded in keeping the peace and bringing order from disorder. He was a great builder, so he was actually the one that helped build the temple in Jerusalem. And he could also be very generous. There was a famine that went around in 25 BC, and because of that famine, he ended up melting one of his gold plates in order to buy corn for the starving people. Now what we know about Herod is that he also had a terrible, terrible character flaw. He was insanely suspicious and very paranoid. It was said that the older he became, the more suspicious he grew until one day he just became a murderous old man. If he suspected anyone as a rival to his power, that person was promptly eliminated. He murdered his wife, his mother, and his three sons. Augustus, the Roman emperor at the time, said that it was safer to be Herod's pig than his boy. You think about that for a moment. How paranoid you have to be to kill your own children. History goes on to tell us that Herod was so wrapped up in his identity of power that on his deathbed, he ordered that the moment he died, a hundred of the most prominent and noble leaders should all be killed as well. He said with Grimm that he was well aware that no one would mourn for his death and that he was determined that some tears should be, should be shed when he died. Now, thankfully, they didn't go through with this order. But think about the arrogance. Think about the pride. Think about the paranoia and the anxiousness that a man who coveted his kingship so much that he's willing to kill other people so that there would be tears when he died. How exhausting. How exhausting to try and figure out what other people were saying about him, what other people were thinking about him, what other people were trying to do in order to take his rule. Constantly thinking about other people in a state of anxiety and paranoia. And thank God that we've grown out of this, right? Thank God that we can't identify with Herod because we don't care what other people think about us. We don't care what other people say about us. Yet his identity led him to worship his power and control. And that led to a life of anxiousness, anxiety, paranoia, and ultimately insanity. And can you see why this anxious man, when a band of wise men roll up from Persia and they're asking where the king of the Jews are or where the king of the Jews is and they're not coming for him. Can you imagine his blood boiling? Can you put yourself in this scene of how angry and frustrated and paranoid he might be that another king was born? 
Can you see why there was a disturbance within the city? Knowing that their king who could pop off at any moment heard that there's another king that's been born and he can't find him? Can you imagine how paranoid he might have been? See, Herod's identity was so wrapped up in this power and control and this kingship that nothing would stop him and nothing and no one would stand in his way, even a child. We see this in verse 11 and verse 16. He tells the wise men to go and find Jesus and come back and tell them where he is so that he could go and worship him. We obviously find later on that he really wasn't going and wanting to worship Jesus. He wanted to eliminate him. Because of find, finding out that the wise men left town without telling him where Jesus was, he incites a murder, a great murder of any male born under two years in the city of Bethlehem. See, his power and his identity in his kingship and his control and his own name had led him to become a very sick and insane man. The next people that we see in this passage is the chief priests and the scribes. And honestly, if you read this passage and you understand Jewish history, these people should probably shock you the most, right? You look at Herod and you understand like, his history and his insanity and why he be, would be worried if someone comes in claiming to be king of the Jews. You can kind of get in the mindset of why he would be looking to destroy anybody and everybody. But when you look at the Pharisees and scribes, when you see men who should have been waiting for the coming Messiah, and then all of a sudden, wise men from the East come looking for that same Messiah that the Old Testament scriptures would preach on, wouldn't these be guys who would jump on the bandwagon of running out and looking for this Christ? I mean, they spent their lives studying the Old Testament text looking at the prophecies and promises that God would have about this coming king, and what do they do? They're apathetic. They're indifferent. These men who studied the scriptures all of a sudden have other men coming and looking for the king of the Jews, and they just answer them. Verse 6 shows us they just answer with a prophetic verse and then they just let the wise men go. I mean, this is, to me, this baffles, baffles me. That someone whose job is to study the scriptures and look for this coming Messiah would just be apathetic. Would just be indifferent to that king who has now come. They should have at least gone with the wise men to see if this was the king, Right? I mean, if anything, they should have been the first people in front of the wise men. This was the Messiah they'd been waiting for, longing for. When you think about this for a second, like, think about a bride on her wedding day. And women, obviously, you probably can attest to this, like thinking about your wedding from a, a, a young child. And all of a sudden, you know, this waiting and this expectation that you have to get married, and then the wedding day comes and you're just indifferent to it. You're apathetic to it. I mean, it, it, you probably need to ask the question, why are you indifferent and apathetic in, in this gift that is now coming? And that's probably a very shallow example. But that's what we see with these Pharisees. 
That's what we see with these scribes, that they'd become indifferent and apathetic to the word of God. That the Messiah that had now come, they just sit back with Herod. Here's the thing. It's not like, it's not like they didn't know something was happening. And the reason I say this is because history actually shows us that there was an expectation around the world that something great was about to happen. Let me read you some commentaries and some historical writings just to prove this point. William Barclay says, It may seem to us an extraordinary thing that these men would show up out of the East to find a king. But the strange thing is this. Just about that time that Jesus was born, there was in the world a strange feeling of expectation of a coming king. A Roman historian, Satanius, says this, There had spread all over the Orient an old and established belief that it was fated at that time for men coming from Judea to rule the world. Tacticus, another Roman historian, tells us that there was a firm persuasion that at this very time the East was to grow powerful and rulers were to come from Judea. Josephus, a Jewish historian even wrote, the Jews themselves had the belief that about that time from their country should come a governor of the earth. The Roman poet Virgil had just wrote his fourth eclogue, which was known as the Messianic Eclogue, about the golden days to come. You see, Christ's coming was not some lovely story that had been made up, but him coming to the world During that time, there was an expectation that men were waiting for a king. There were desires in their heart, and they had discovered that they could not build a golden age or empire without God. It was a waiting for this this king to come throughout the known world. And when he came, the ends of the earth were gathered at his cradle. You see, there was an expectation around not only Jerusalem and the Roman Empire, but around the known world. So it's not like these scribes and Pharisees who are attuned to what's going on in their country wouldn't have felt this. And then all of a sudden, wise men from the east come asking for the king of the Jews. This should have been their moment. They shouldn't have had to been asked by Herod where this king was. They should have already been there. And yet they waited, and they stayed back, and they became indifferent when their coming Messiah was five miles away from their kingdom. As one pastor put it, their quest for identity was locked up in the same exact thing as Herod's, power and control and perfection. You see, where Herod's was a rebellious control, Theirs was a religious. They had defined, they'd been defined by their knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures. They'd been defined by their good works and that led them to worship themselves and that blinded them to see the promise that God had given them right in front of their very eyes. They became apathetic and indifferent to the promises of the Lord. And then finally, the third group of people that we see in this passage are wise men. Now, just to kind of give you this picture, um, and I I might blow up your Christmas nativity scene, and I don't apologize for it. 
Um, so typically, wise men from the east are coming from the country of Persia. Um, and I'll, I'll talk how powerful and highly regarded they are in a moment, but just to kind of put this in perspective as well, this would have been about a band of 12 to 14 men and their families and security guarding them. Like, these weren't just like three dudes that just kind of walked the desert on their own. But this would have been a caravan of people. Probably a Dodge, but, you know, I'm glad somebody got it. <laughs> All right. I'll, anyways, it would have been a, a band of people walking across the desert, coming into the town of Bethlehem, knocking on doors, asking where the king of the Jews was. They wouldn't have just walked up to Herod and been like, hey man, where's the king of the Jews? They would have created a disturbance within the city. And finally, Herod, recognizing that there were dignitaries, powerful men, would have welcomed them into his kingdom. See, these wise men, what we know about them, is that they were powerful and highly regarded men from the Persian Empire. It is written about them that they were, they were men who tried to overthrow the Babylonian Empire but couldn't, and so instead of trying to gain control, they just became philosophers and astrologists and scientists and, and um, doctors, right? So they, they became men of prominence and they were highly regarded, so highly regarded that they were, would say, second in command in regards to the kingdom. Nobody was greater than them except anybody who was born within the royal family. It's also said that these men were like the Levites for the Jewish people. They were the teachers and the instructors of the Persian kings. And in Persia, no sacrifice could actually be offered unless one of the Magi were present. They were men of holiness and wisdom. They were skilled in philosophy and medicine and natural sciences. They were interpreters of dreams. They were soothsayers. And at best, during their greatest time in history, they were men who sought truth. So we've got doctors and scientists and astrologists and historians wrapped up in these group of men. And as I said earlier, being a magi was the most prestigious position in the Persian Empire outside of being a part of the royal kingdom. So we have to ask the question, how did they know about the coming king? I mean, yes, we have the star that points them to it, but if you understand and know Jewish history, right, at the time that the Jews were put into exile in Babylon, right, we've got Daniel, Shadrach, Shadrach Meshach, and Abednego, those, those big dudes in the Old Testament, they would have been people who rubbed shoulders with these magi. And they would have been men who knew and had their scriptures and studied them. And so we can see how as the Jews left Babylon, and some of them a remnant stayed, how these magi would come to know the Old Testament scriptures. If they were wise, if they were historians, they would have read everything, including these scriptures. But not only were they historians, not only did they read the Holy Scriptures, but we know from history and we know from this passage they were also astrologists. These men studied the stars and believed that the heavens could predict the future. And as we can see by this star over Bethlehem, they saw the importance. They saw that it lined up with what the Old Testament Scriptures were talking about and they left all they had 
to go and find the promised Messiah. And here's the thing I need us to see about that, the importance of these wise men, is that in all their power and prestige and wealth, they followed the scriptures. They followed this star because they understood that their soul longed for something greater than all that they had. And they understood that it could only be found in this promised Messiah. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, we taught on a story about an Ethiopian eunuch who was very similar to these wise men, that he had all this power and prestige and this wealth, and yet there was an emptiness within him that he could not fill. And it could only be filled by the love and grace and mercy of Christ. Here we have a similar story of men of great stature and wealth and power who, unlike Herod, unlike the chief scribes and priests, did not see that what they had was their end. They did not worship and find identity in their power and prestige. But they understood that they were missing something. And that could only be filled by this coming Messiah, by this baby to be born. And unlike the scribes, we see them go earnestly. Right? We see them go earnestly and with an expectant hope. And then when they get to Bethlehem and they leave Herod, they see the star again and they have this exceeding joy. Very, very counter to what we see the scribes and the Pharisees and how they respond. And when they found the Messiah, they rejoiced. They humbled themselves. And they didn't just humble themselves, they fell on their faces and worshiped this child. And can you see why they would have fell down and worshiped? Can you see why they would have rejoiced? These would have been men who studied and learned about the things of the world their entire lives. These would have been men who had all that they ever wanted and all that they ever desired. And yet there was still an emptiness. There was still a void. And they come to this child. They come to this promise that they had read about and hoped in. And they found him. They found the one who made them whole, complete, clean, and satisfied. How could they not rejoice? How could they not lay flat before him And how can we not do the same? So here's what I want to ask this morning based on these three groups. Which group of people do you find yourself to be? Now, I mean, nobody's going to jump on the Herod train, right? Not out here murdering people. If you are, then we need to talk. Um, but think about this for a second. Herod worshipped power and control, right? Herod was so wrapped up in his identity of being a king and worrying about what people had to say and worrying about what people thought about him that he tried to control every minute detail of his life. Maybe you do the same, right? 
Maybe you've been hurt in the past, and so therefore you have to control every single relationship that's in your life in order that you don't feel that same pain again. Maybe somebody's done something to you that hurts so bad that in order to make sure that doesn't happen again, you control them. Maybe things have happened in your life that, that make you anxious or make you paranoid. Maybe you're the chief priest where you've become indifferent to the things of the Lord. Where you see the commands of God and they don't stir your heart and your affection for Him. And, and I'm not talking about the, as David would describe it, the divided heart. I'm not talking about where we're still longing for the things of the Lord and yet our hearts may not feel it. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm talking about the indifference and the apathetic feeling we can see or have when we look at the commands of God. When we look at these commands and decide, no, I'm going to live my life the way I want to. I'm going to live this religious, pharisaical way in which I am going to do these own things. And, and it comes back to the same foundation that Herod has. It's control. It's, it's this illusion of control. Now maybe, maybe you're in here this morning, you're like, Josh, man, this Advent has been great. I've been able to worship the Lord in both mind and heart. And I, I would see myself as the wise man. Well, praise God. And here's my thing, when it comes to the wise men, we see the example they give when they come to the Messiah is that they come in humility, they come in generosity, and they come in boldness. And I know we talked about that a couple of weeks ago when we look at the early church in Acts, but I would hope that that is our mindset. I would hope that that is our heart when it comes to the things of the Lord, that we are humble, bold, and generous with all that we have. So which of these people do you find yourself to be this morning? Maybe, maybe you're a little bit of all three. Maybe there's some things that you need to wrestle with with the Lord that you are trying to control too much. Or you have become apathetic to some things that God has commanded you. Where are you finding your identity? And how is that identity shaping your worship? The other thing I want us to see this morning, and, and this is... This is the call for us as believers in Christ, right? If you'll notice, the book of Matthew starts with this idea of come and see. Come and see that this child has been born. Come and see that the Savior of the world, Emmanuel, God with us, has made his way to our lives. But when we flip through to the end of Matthew... And we also see this example in the wise men. It is now go and tell. And this is the example that Matthew gives us today, even in the wise men, is come and see and go and tell the joy and the hope and the truth that we have that this coming Messiah is here. I want you to notice that over the last two weeks, this incarnation story has introduced us to people who would not, we would not expect to be the main characters of the story. Right, God uses the humble and lowly shepherds, and then he brings wise men from the east. Neither of these groups of people would have been the Jewish people 
that most of us, if this was our story, probably would have written about. And what Matthew is doing for us today is showing us that the gospel story from beginning to end is about Jesus and him being the Messiah to all the nations, not just the Jews. As Romans 1.16 would tell us, for I am unashamed of the gospel, for it is the power unto salvation for both, for all who believe, for both the Jew and the Greek. As one pastor puts it, this passage not only opened the door for us as Gentiles to rejoice in the Messiah, it added proof that he was, in fact, the Messiah that was promised from old. Because one of the repeated prophecies was that the nations and the kings would, in fact, come to him as ruler of the world. Matthew is showing us, even in this small picture of the incarnate Christ, that the Messiah has come not just for the Jews, but for the ends of the earth. And God's plan from the beginning has always been for the gospel to spread. We see in Revelation what it's going to look like, that every tribe and tongue and nation will be worshiping the king. And we see from the angels coming to the shepherds, we see the star leading the wise men to Bethlehem. God has had a design for his, nation, for his glory to go out to the nations. For his glory to go forth and for salvation to come through the worshiping of his son. Guys, he was doing it then in this passage here. In the early stories of Jesus' birth, he was doing it then and his design is still going. And this will forever be his plan until he returns. That the gospel would go forth. And this is God's will for us. That we would go and tell Right? We have come and seen, we have come and tasted this Messiah who's shown us all that we need. He's given us joy and hope and satisfaction in all that we've been longing for. And so now it's time for us to go and tell. Go and tell to the spheres of influences in our lives, the people that he's placed around you, whether it's your family and your children at home or if it's your work or it, wherever God would call you to be, that is where you are to go and tell the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. And this is God's will for us. So I want to close this morning on the significance of the gifts because I think they're beautiful. And if you've heard these Symbolism's awesome. I hope they bring hope and joy and, and kind of restore that love for this story. But we see that the Magi brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh, right? Which from the outside, outset doesn't seem very important or significant. But I want to take, take you through the symbols of these gifts. History would tell us that these Persian men would have had the custom to bring gifts to a king, right? It, 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 if they were to ever approach a king and not have a gift, it would have been disrespectful. And the first gift that we see that they bring is gold. Gold to them would have been the greatest metal and the only gift fit for a king. So even in them bringing gold, they recognized who Jesus was to be. Jesus has the only title of king. And when he returns, Revelation shows us that he will, and I believe, have a tattoo on his thigh that says, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. So if anybody wants to talk about tattoos, 
We're going to have to go back to Jesus. But this king was to reign not by force, but by love. He was to rule over men's hearts, not from a throne, but from a cross. Jesus is the one true king that should rule and reign within our lives, and it is in him that we find true satisfaction, hope, and joy. Frankincense is a gift for a priest. It was in the temple worship, and the temple sacrifices would use this perfume. The function of a priest, if you aren't aware of what they stand for, is that they were bridge builders. The Latin word for priest is pontifex, which actually means a bridge builder. The priest was the man who built a bridge between him and God. And that's exactly what Christ did when he came to earth, when he died the death on the cross and he rose from the grave. He created a bridge between man and God that no longer man had to go to a priest to to sacrifice based on their sins, but now we can go to the great high priest, as Hebrews 6 would tell us, who has gone behind the curtain for us on our behalf. When Jesus died on the cross, the gospel shows us that the veil in the temple had been torn, which signifies that we now have access because of Christ to God. And myrrh, myrrh is the gift for one who was to die. So even in these gifts, they recognized this Messiah to come. Because that's exactly what Jesus came in the world to do. He came into this world humbly, putting on flesh to live the life we could not, to die the death we so rightly deserve, and to raise from the grave and seal our adoption as sons and daughters of God. So that in him we now have everlasting life, abundant joy, and we get to be called sons and daughters. And God now rejoices over us. I, I wanted to use this example a couple weeks ago, but um, you guys saw Ezra was up here singing with the band this morning. Um, a couple weeks ago, he stood right there with a little microphone in his hand, and um, Dwayne was in the back. I'm, I don't know why I'm tearing up about this, but he's in the back taking a picture of, of Ezra. And I couldn't help but think that's how God views us. As his sons and daughters, he is in the back cheering us on, taking a picture for the world to to see and to show, this is my son, this is my daughter. And that's what we have in Christ. I'm gonna ask the band to come up and we're gonna close in communion this week. Um, And and like every week, in celebrating this, this gift that we have, We recognize that in Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection, for those who believe in him as Savior, we are given a new life. We understand that recognizing and worshiping him as Savior, we see that his body was broken. We see that his blood was shed and poured out on our behalf so that our sins would be covered. So that when God looks upon you, when he looks upon me, he's like Dwayne in the back, taking pictures, rejoicing in his children. And he no longer sees our sins. He no longer sees our shame. But he sees us as he would see Christ.
my son, my daughter, in whom I am well pleased. And this is why we celebrate communion. This is why we do it every single week, to remind ourselves of how God sees us, to remind ourselves of what Christ has done on the cross that we could never do. So we're going to celebrate. If you guys need to take some time to just reflect on this sermon, go ahead and do so. If you guys need to go and, and, and repent and restore relationships, as, as Scripture would say, don't take communion, but restore those relationships and then go and celebrate. And if there's sin that needs to be repented of, take some time to do that. And again, go and celebrate because this is what Christ has done for us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your great grace and the mercy that you've shown us and the identity that you've given to us now in Christ. That this child who came into the world, born to die, born to set his people free, we now have a picture of what it looks like to worship. Lord, help us to be worshipers of this great, great grace and mercy. Help our identity to, to, to be found in you and you alone. Lord, where we try to control every aspect of our lives, from relationships to work to pain and, and suffering, Lord, help us just to give it to you where we have become apathetic and indifferent to the word of God, Lord, unite our hearts, as David says. That the knowledge of the scriptures would inflame our hearts and we would find joy and hope in you. And our affections would be stirred for you by these truths that we read. Lord, help us to be like the wise men who are humble, who are generous, and who are bold in light of knowing the truth that they receive, in light of the truth of this Messiah who has come. And help us to live in light of this truth, Lord. Thank you for this great grace. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at